It's Monday, October 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The next presidential debate has been thrown into turmoil. After the Commission on Presidential Debates decided it would hold a virtual debate, President Trump said he would not be participating. Instead, his campaign said he will hold a rally, and Biden's camp will hold a town hall. While the president continues to recover from COVID-19, he says he is ready to get back out there. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for this, new polls and stimulus talk. Next, to survive the pandemic, the restaurant industry has had to adjust and reinvent itself. While many can't wait to get back into a buzzing restaurant, the reality is that it might still be far off. So restaurants are focusing on outdoor patio dining, takeout options, keeping menus smaller, and being creative in how to retain their customer base. At least 100,000 restaurants have closed in the past six months, and the industry is on track to lose $240 billion. Tom Sitsuma, food critic at the Washington Post, joins us for how restaurants are changing with the pandemic. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It came to the office last Wednesday. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. I get tested all the time because I, I, uh, I'm in conversation with the president. Really? I'll see you on the phone. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about what we're learning about the possible future debates between President Trump and Joe Biden. Right after the vice presidential debate, the Presidential Debate Commission said, we're going to do these things all virtual now because President Trump had gotten COVID. A bunch of people were raising the issue saying that he you know, might be still be contagious. And for the safety of all, they decided to go with these virtual conventions. Well, that didn't hold long at all. President Trump right away said it's a waste of his time. He doesn't want to do it. Joe Biden's campaign also said similar things that they didn't want to do a virtual one. So, Ginger, what do we know about this? It seems like the president really needs these debates to happen to help his campaign if they can. That's right. So we heard on Thursday morning that unilaterally the debate commission had decided to move the debates to a virtual format. Um, As you said, concerns still that the president could be contagious or those with the president as the disease has uh, been transmitted among his inner circle, those that might travel with him to a debate. They felt that that was just the safer move. And almost immediately, President Trump said he would not participate. Uh, Biden said that he would. Um, and then upon having Trump saying he would not do a virtual debate, uh, Biden's campaign came back and said, um, you know, that the debate that he didn't want to participate in sort of the second of three uh, was meant to be a town hall format where they would take questions from undecided voters. Um, and Biden's campaign said that if uh, Trump didn't participate in debate number two, they should make debate number three uh, a town hall style debate. Um, and this is really in part because that's really Biden's strength, talking to people, appearing empathetic. Uh, when interacting with people and hearing their challenges, something that his campaign has long thought he would do better uh, at than the president. Now, let's be clear. This is so much uncertainty uh, at this point. (laughs) Trump has said he's not going to, uh, but we have historically seen the president change his mind so many times on things like this. Um, And by Thursday afternoon, we were already hearing uh, from sources that they were trying to persuade the president to change his mind uh, and actually participate in that debate. 
It's tough. I really do think it's kind of irresponsible of the president to try to get out there so quickly. He could still be contagious. He's already working at the Oval Office. You know, he's putting a lot of people in the reach of getting the virus. And I know he feels good. And I know his doctors have said he's doing better, but still he could be contagious. So it's tough. And, And I understand why the debate commission wanted to do this virtually, but you just can't really endanger all these people. And the president just wants to get out there, show strength. And He needs it. He needs to be out there in person. That's where his strengths are. So we'll see what happens on all of that. I did want to talk a little bit about, you know, more stimulus, more of these stimulus talks. The president came out last week and said, we're shutting down the talks until after the election. Then he went back and said, "Okay, well, let's get something for the airlines, maybe some of these twelve hundred dollar checks for more people. But Nancy Pelosi is holding pretty firm, saying that she doesn't want to do any smaller standalone bills unless it's tied to something bigger. The speaker really wants to not let the president just do um, the pieces that are politically advantageous to him and not the stuff that she thinks is also necessary to respond to the current crisis. So uh, she doesn't want to see just little pieces, although she has at times signaled a willingness, a willingness to do um, the airline piece alone, a willingness to do the stimulus checks alone. Um, That has fallen apart after she's made that offer in the past. Um, So it's not without some back and forth that we've seen. I think that, you know, in a normal political environment, we would be shocked to see any type of legislation get passed in the month of October of an election year. Um, It's just normally impossible. Um, The idea that they even got close to coming to some kind of deal um, is surprising, but it still just feels miles away, uh, especially if we're using the election as a deadline. It's such a short amount of time to get something passed. Um, Wouldn't be surprised if we see maybe something in October or November, November or December, uh, no matter who wins uh, the November election, but um, time is really running out on it to get done before then. I mean, there's so many, just like you said, there's so many things tied to the election. More stimulus, the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, a vaccine. Everything's got to be done by the election. I, I, it's just tough to imagine that it all, any or all of it could be done by then. The, another thing I wanted to talk about, you know, we've been talking about more debates and, and all of this stuff, but we're getting data that a lot of people, millions of people have already voted by mail over 70 times more than this point in the 2016 election. So a lot of people have already made up their minds. And this is something that we've talked about a lot. A lot of people are made up their minds. There's a very tiny number of people that are actually undecided. And Democrats are coming out a lot more than Republicans when it comes to this vote by mail thing right now. That's right. We're seeing more people, particularly people worried about the pandemic, worried about long lines on election day, voting earlier. Um, and I think you're right. You know, normally we would see people making their minds up at this point. Um, one place that Democrats point to and trying to um, sort of calm the nerves of some of their supporters was a lot of anxiety on the left. I think that these polls are, are maybe not true um, is the number of polls that are showing Biden above 50 percent, right? People who have made their mind up, who are not inclined to change their mind, and it's more than 50 percent in the state. And even if there's some small number of undecided people out there, uh, once a candidate crosses 50 percent, once they've convinced a, a majority of the electorate, it doesn't matter what those undecided folks um, decide to do. They've, they've already 
it's already been sort of the, you know, the, the, the goose is cooked. It's already sort of getting yeah. done. Um, and that, that is the direction uh, that we see things moving in, especially as more Democrats are casting these early votes. But um, to, to be sure, we still see most of the votes in America cast on Election Day, and we have not yet seen evidence that that would change this year. Yeah. And that's the other thing that figures into it. There's going to be a lot of vote by mail. So those are going to take longer to count. Uh, people voting in person, you know, we'll get those results pretty quickly. And that's why we're going to see most likely see a delay in in any type of results. I did want to uh, focus a little bit more on some of the polls that we're seeing. Just a bunch of really good polls for Joe Biden. This comes after the debate that he had with President Trump uh, in a lot of key battleground states. Uh, 538.com does kind of this big average of polls. And uh, I mean, they just have a lot of great numbers for Joe Biden. Uh, I think they said Joe Biden has an 84 and 100 percent chance of winning the presidential election. And it goes all the way down for Democrats taking the Senate. These polls just look good for them right now. That's right. We also have um, an average of national polls at NBCNews.com that uh, shows what you're saying as well. Uh, Joe Biden consistently leading in the national polls. And people will remember that the national poll is not how we elect presidents. We don't pick them by popular vote. Um, but also you can look on our site and see state by state uh, poll numbers that consistently and these battleground states show uh, Joe Biden with the lead in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Um, if President uh, Trump loses those three states that he won in 2016 um, and and holds everything else, holds Florida, holds Arizona, which is where he's trailing pretty badly at this point, holds Ohio. Um, that's it. He, he loses. So uh, we are seeing a lot of polls that indicate that. And we're also seeing polls move after that last debate and even more so after the president was diagnosed with COVID. So there's just no signs at this point of something turning it around for the president. But there's still a lot of time left for the, before the election. You know, all these things plays out to the last second. So we'll, we'll have to see on all of that. But thank you for joining us. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Takeout is going to be part of every restaurant's future going forward. There's not a chef or a restaurant owner that I haven't talked to that says takeout will not be a component of their business going forward if it wasn't before. And this, we're not talking just mom and pops here or fast food. We're talking fine dining as well. Joining us now is Tom Sietzema, food critic at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about the restaurant industry, the recovery that we're going through right now. I mean, obviously, we're still going through the pandemic, and the restaurant industry has been one of those industries that was just kind of decimated, really hit hard. And uh, food and restaurants are very near and dear to my heart. I, I was doing a food radio show with one of my colleagues at the station I worked at, so I uh, got to know a lot of people in the industry. Obviously, I love food. I just love to eat. It's a big part of my life, a big part of a lot of people's lives. But they've had to really reinvent themselves in a lot of different ways just to adjust to what's going on with the pandemic. Tom, start us off and give us kind of the state of the restaurant industry right now, because we've lost at least 100,000 restaurants and, you know, workers are affected. The industry is on track to lose a lot of money. Start us off there. To your point there, nearly 3 million workers remain out of work since March, and the food industry, according to the National Restaurant Association, is on track to lose $240 billion 
by the end of this year. And on top of that, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention tells us that we might not have access to a vaccine against the coronavirus until late spring or summer of next year. So this is something that restaurants are going to have to endure through uh, winter and, and into next year. And like you do, too, I'm obviously very fond of restaurants. Restaurants are our first responders in many ways. You know, we weren't used to cooking three meals a day and takeout has become big. Takeout is going to be part of every restaurant's future going forward. There's not a chef or a restaurant owner that I haven't talked to that says takeout will not be a component of their business going forward if it wasn't before. And we're not talking just mom and pops here or fast food. We're talking fine dining as well. Certain markets are certainly lucky to have outdoor spaces. That's going to be really important going forward. You know, if you have a parking lot that you can turn into, say, a dining room, hey, that's great. Now, not too many uh, big city markets have huge expanses of unused asphalt, right? But certainly in the near suburbs, those things exist. And here in outside of Washington, we have a restaurant called Clarity that has done an amazing job of turning its parking lot into tented seating. And they've also taken their popular inside circular chef's kitchen and moved it outside. So they have an outside kitchen now with an Argentine grill and a smoker. They have an oyster set up, and their center of gravity has really moved from inside to outside. That's one of the most interesting aspects of all of this because I love a nice bustling restaurant, great decor inside. It's comforting, and it's, and it's fun, and it's cool. But out of necessity, as you mentioned, a lot of these restaurants have been pushed out onto the sidewalks. Streets have been closed in a lot of different cities, almost creating these little promenades, which I think is also very cool. It's kind of been this, uh, you know, really happening type improvement almost, you know, you get to see other people. It just looks a lot more lively, almost like if, like I said, it's just one huge promenade type thing. So in a sense, I feel that's kind of a benefit too. And don't forget, you know, restaurant owners have endured the recession, earthquakes, hurricanes, 9-11, they are creative types and they can turn fairly quickly on a dime. They're also an industry that runs on pretty thin profit margins. So I think the restaurants that you're going to see survive are both good at turning on a dime, being creative, and also restaurants that are fairly close. You know, people don't want to go too far for their meals. And, you know, neighborhood restaurants and smaller mom and pops, perhaps that have have a history of takeout and, and doing it well, are in the best position to survive, I think. But ultimately, you really have to be creative. Across the country, I've talked to chefs who um, have done things like sell off their wine inventory. Why not? Or even their kitchen spices. They've looked in every nook and cranny to make a buck from what they already have on hand. And a lot of restaurants, too, going forward, I think consumers can expect smaller menus. You know, it gives chefs and uh, restaurant owners uh, tighter control of their inventory. And we're going to be paying more for food, too, I think, with those restaurants that do survive. And I hope there are a lot of them. For a long time, you know, we haven't been paying farmers enough. We haven't been paying staffs of restaurants enough, certainly. And I think it's high time that we learn the true cost of dining out. And restaurants and and consumers are going to have to uh, expect to pay more going forward. I want to focus on something that you mentioned in your article. You know, nobody wants a business owner, restaurant owner to lose their livelihoods. Same thing for the employees, the workers. Nobody wants any of that to happen. But they're are some benefits, some 
thing, some overglut, I guess, in the restaurant industry that has having to be shaved off of this out of necessity. You know, a lot of these restaurants that have closed were probably close to being shuttered anyways. And, you know, these were the kind of final nails in those coffins, restaurants that weren't being profitable. And then some of the, uh, you know, things beyond that, that you mentioned, these huge menus and in these restaurants where the tables are so close, you know, you're practically in somebody else's party at that point. Those are some of the things that I do feel are a benefit as we're changing the way the industry is going. The big pressure is for the industry to keep diners engaged and like, okay, we've gotten through the first seven or eight months now and what's next. And one restaurant operator told me, you know, even blockbuster movies only pack theaters for two or three weeks. He says, restaurants are like movies that are required to pack theaters for multiple years. And that's so true. And again, you know, the restaurants who who can adapt to this and are quick to move, move, move or change quickly when they see that diners are losing interest or might need a tweak are in the best position to survive, I think. Looking forward at the industry, too, I have to imagine that this is really going to be a game changer for restaurants for many years to come. I mean, think about design of the restaurants as we've been talking about, you know, outdoor patios. Uh, we're moving into sidewalks right now. But even when people do start building again and designing new restaurants, they're going to have this in mind. We do need that outdoor dining. We need maybe big windows for good airflow. A lot of this is going to change the industry. Well, the inside has to be outside. You're absolutely right. And ventilation is going to be very important, whether it's heating or air conditioning or just moving that air around. And like I said, you know, the smart restaurants are moving their kitchens outdoors where they can. It doesn't always have to be super expensive to make tweaks to keep diners engaged. I mean, I'm thinking out here in Washington of the takeout that I've seen. You know, there are restaurants who have made us feel nurtured beyond just the cooking. There's a Mexican restaurant that affixes cute little labels to some of its dishes, you know, and there's a little sweet treat from another restaurant that comes, uh, you know, unbidden. And, and, and some restaurants write little poems or even suggest with their meals what music to listen to while you're eating their food. And I think it's that thoughtfulness and those little handwritten notes that don't cost a lot. They might take a little time to, to put together, but remind us of the role that restaurants play in our lives, which is you know beyond food. It's about community and getting people together and feeling pampered and well taken care of. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of restaurants that move that kitchen outside, whether it's putting a barbecue outside or an Argentine grill, you know, for that more sure, focused. Sure, Clarity in Vienna, Virginia. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, th those are great ideas, and people love to see that kind of interaction there, uh, you know, whenever they can. The last thing I want to end on here is uh, one of the restaurants you were talking to said the biggest takeaway right now, and this is for both people, This is and this is for both sides, uh, the diners and the restaurants alike, is to temper your expectations. It's going to be weird for some time to come. Right. Absolutely. It, it will. Like one chef told me, he goes, the goal right now is to make it through this and nothing more than that. We all have to you know, temper our, our expectations. And, you know, it's hard to think about the future when you're treading water. But, you know, I, I think challenges over the years, uh, over the decades have brought out the best in restaurants. Definitely. I'm looking forward to the way the industry changes, the way they adapt. And, and these people are really great at doing that, being creative, getting those new menus. So I'm excited for the industry to make that comeback and, and ready to get back out there as, as a lot of people are. Tom Sitsuma, food critic at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.